There's no options here. There's no options here. Well, you know, you have an interpretation, I have an interpretation. Forget interpretation. The man who does due diligence to understand the Bible rightly must come to God's interpretation. There's only one. The author's. doesn't matter what I think. It doesn't matter what any other preacher thinks. The only thing that matters is what Jesus Christ thinks. Hello, and welcome to this edition of That They Might Know, a podcast dedicated to proclaiming the gospel of Jesus Christ. I am your host, Dr. William Mazella, and our teacher is my friend and brother in the Lord, Joe Durso. After enjoying this discussion of God's Word, if you are seeking discipleship or biblical counseling, please email us. Now for today's message. Dear Lord, it is an easy thing to become confused over words. How we define words, how we understand them. And so I ask, Lord, as we go into this lesson today, I pray, dear Lord, that you would give clear biblical understanding to the definitions of words and what we mean. Words like the gospel, uh, the truth, uh, repentance. Dear Lord, it's important to know and understand these words according to the truth of the Word of God. Open our, our hearts and our minds and our eyes to see the truth. And I pray if there are any there out who listen to this message, who understand the gospel in some way other than it's meant to be understood, that they would come to a saving knowledge of the truth, the saving of their soul. I ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen. This is episode 46, The Gospel Received and Rejected. As we look at the uh, New Testament, as it opens to us with uh, the testimony, the history of the Lord Jesus Christ, the one who was prophesied to come from Genesis chapter 1, all the way through the opening of Matthew chapter 1. Thousands of years of prophecy uh, being foretold about the one who would come. <clears throat> and then in uh, Mark chapter 1 verses 4 and 5 we read this concerning the gospel that John the Baptist preached. And I quote chapter 1 verses 4 and 5. John the Baptist appeared in the wilderness preaching a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. And all the country of Judea, Judea was going out to him. And all the people of Jerusalem, and they were being baptized by him in the Jordan River, confessing their sins. So as the gospel opens in the second book of the New Testament, Mark's gospel, we read that John came, and he came preaching a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins, a baptism of repentance. Now, you know, baptism is a word that was transliterated because um, the king didn't want it translated uh, other than his own tradition. But the word, it means to immerse. If you were to take it and 
give a definition, a, an English definition to the word. It means to immerse or be placed inside of something. So what the Bible is saying here that John the Baptist or the baptizer, he came baptizing, <clears throat> he appeared in the wilderness preaching a baptism, uh, a submersion, if you will, being placed within repentance for the forgiveness of sins, being immersed into forgiveness. When a person's baptized, literally in a physical way, a person is put, placed into the water, goes down into the water, which is a picture of death, comes up out of the water, which is a picture of newness of life. And according to John's gospel, who comes first, it's a baptism of repentance. It's a baptism of repentance. Repentance is seeing oneself for what we are as sinful people before Almighty God and turning away from that sin, having understood that salvation is something that, is, that God does. Let me say that again. Salvation is something that God does. As sinful people, we look in the world through our sinful eyes and we see things done through our eyes as if we're at the center of everything. But the Bible doesn't put man at the center of everything. It puts God at the center of everything. So when John came preaching a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins, he's seeing something that God was going to do. That's what he was preaching. And all the country of Judea was coming out to him and all the people of Jerusalem, and they were being baptized by him in the Jordan River, confessing their sins. What were they doing? They were confessing their sins. Now, was it a heartfelt repentance? Obviously not. Why? Because tens of thousands of people were going out to him. <clears throat> and when it comes to the, when we get to the upper room, after Christ had gone to the cross and then he preached more to the people after uh, his death and resurrection, when the Holy Spirit was about to be poured out on Pentecost and would give complete understanding to all of these things. For those 40 days, he was preaching him from the Old Testament. He was preaching himself, Jesus Christ, as the Lord God of the universe who became a man and took upon himself the sins of the world um, for those for whom he would sin. And he, he made clear what God had said previously. But there were 120 people who were in the upper room. There were about 500 people to whom Christ revealed himself uh, after his death and resurrection. And so there wasn't tens of thousands of people who had come to a saving knowledge of Jesus Christ. There was maybe 500. So what were all those people doing who were being baptized for the forgiveness of their sins? Well, whatever they were doing, it wasn't true to the inner person. It wasn't a reality. It was something they, to which they were going through the motions. Now, as we look at this message, and as we look at baptism, and as we look at these, these mentions of repentance and these things, we have to understand something. That we're only as real as we're true in our inner self. 
I mean, we can say things with our words and really have no meaning behind it because what, our heart's not in it. I mean, we need to understand that from the get-go. And anyone who comes under the hearing of the gospel, under the hearing of the truth, or any teaching or anything, they need to understand that it's either reality or it isn't. And it's not a reality because we say we make it a reality. It's a reality because it is a reality because God makes it a reality. It's a huge difference between what men do or what men say they're doing and what is actually accomplished by Almighty God. In Mark chapter 1, verses 14 and 15, after John had been taken into custody, we we are told, Jesus came into Galilee preaching the gospel of God. So Jesus comes preaching the gospel of God and saying, the time is fulfilled, the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe in the gospel. Repent and believe in the gospel. So Jesus came preaching the gospel, and with this gospel, he, he, he commanded people for them to repent, turn from their sin. So what was the gospel that Jesus was preaching, which in the same way as John was a gospel of repentance? He came preaching a gospel of repentance. It says first that he told people to repent and believe in the gospel. So it's the turning away from sin, it's the acknowledgement of sin that comes first. Now in Matthew chapters 5 through 7, we have the Sermon on the Mount, which is in great detail what Jesus preached as he opened up his ministry in those early days. And in Matthew chapter 7, 15 through 29, as he's concluding his words, words which he was basically telling people about the human heart what it means to pray in reality, what it means to, uh, to, to sin. And he's making it very clear picture of what sin is and what prayer is, what righteous deeds are, and uh, w- what, what we are at the heart. And he begins with brokenness. And blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. And he's, he's revealing the condition of the heart. We're all Basically, paupers is how he opens the sermon. I don't want to take time to go throughout the whole sermon, but what I want to do is take a little time in the conclusions of the sermon. Beginning in verse 15, he says, Beware of false prophets who come to you in sheep's clothing, but inwardly are ravenous wolves. He's bringing us to a place, okay, I'm going to conclude this message now, and I want you to understand something. That a lot of people are going to use these words, but they're not going to use them for good. Many of them are going to be false prophets, and they're going to come to you, and they're going to look like shepherds. Shepherds wear the skin of the sheep. Uh, And and so they're going to look like shepherds, but actually they're ravenous wolves. You will know them by their fruits. Grapes are not gathered to thorn bushes, nor figs from thistles, are they? You can't grow a grape on a rose bush, on a thorn bush. You know, you can stick a fig or a a grape on there, but it's not growing from that vine. And so he's telling us that there's ways of knowing the true from the false, the false prophet from the true. And what he's saying is you get fruit 
from a certain type of bush. And then he con continues in verse 17, so every good tree bears good fruit, but the bad tree bears bad fruit. Verse 18, a good tree cannot bear bad fruit, nor can a bad tree bear good fruit. Every tree that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. So then you will know them by their fruits. This is where the playing ends. The empty words have no meaning because before Almighty God, he knows the truth from the false. You and I can be confused. We can be confused about what a word means or what the gospel means, but Jesus isn't confused about anything. And one day there will be final judgment and some will go into eternal life and some will go into eternal punishment and God is the judge. So we're just laying down a foundation here that it doesn't matter what you or I think primarily. What matters is what God thinks, what God is doing. In verse 21, Jesus continues and says, Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven. There it is. Just because a man says, Lord, and he calls God Lord, doesn't mean that he means he's Lord. Not everyone who says, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven. But the one who does the will of my Father who is in heaven will enter. So what's the reality? Not words. The reality is in living life. Jesus is saying it right here. Does that mean that the kingdom of God is about doing good works? No, that's not what's being said here. We're talking about just the difference between the reality of one who says one thing and does something else and the, rea and the, and the one who says and does. We're not talking about perfection. There's no perfection being mentioned in this section right here. This is talking about reality. Are we true to who we believe ourselves to be? So verse 22, many will say to me on that day, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name and in your name cast out demons and in your name perform many miracles? So here's the statement. <clears throat> These people are saying things in Jesus' name. He just got done saying, not everyone who says, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom. Now he's saying many in that day will, will claim Jesus' name. And his response will be in verse 23, and then I declare to them, I never knew you. Leave me who practice lawlessness. So what God is saying right here, what Jesus is saying at the conclusion, towards the conclusion of this great sermon about salvation, people need to be real, not just in the words, but in their heart, in the meaning behind the words, in the reality of what they're saying. Is it true from their heart? Are they real? Or are they just using Jesus' name to claim something that they don't really possess? And as Jesus concludes this story, there are two people. There are those who hear these words of mine and act on them. They'll be like wise men who build their house on the rock. And the rain fell and the floods came and the winds blew and slammed against the house. And yet it did not fall, for it had been founded on the rock. And everyone who hears these words of mine and does not act on them will be like a foolish man who built his house on the sand and the rain fell, and the floods came, and the winds blew and slammed against that house, and it fell, and its collapse was great. Now, the person who acts 
is the person who puts saving faith in Jesus Christ. The end result of that saving faith, because faith without works by itself is dead, being by itself alone, James tells us, is the person whose faith produces fruit. That fruit is produced by the Holy Spirit. The gospel is a gospel of repentance. And in that gospel of repentance, there is fruit to be born. It's not just words. It's not just empty words that leaves a house to collapse because it's not built on a firm foundation. But the firm foundation gives the house strength by which it stands against every storm of life. So in verse 28, in the conclusion of this sermon, we read, when Jesus had finished these words, the crowds were amazed at his teaching. For he was teaching them as one who had authority and not as the scribes. So there's teachers. You know, I'm a teacher. Um, There's many teachers. There's one, just one, who has authority. When Jesus spoke these words, he spoke as one, the only one that has authority. His word will be the last word. His word will be depart from me or well done, good and faithful servant. His word is the only word that matters. So there's one, and they were amazed the way he taught. He taught as one having authority. But their amazement did not get most of them saved. It's not amazement that saves people. It's not a man standing in awe saying, this is unbelievable, this is great. This is a man who says, this is true, and it means it in the depths of his heart. Now that brings us to Acts chapter 2. There's two reactions, just the way there are two foundations and two reactions before the cross, there's two reactions after the cross. In Acts chapter 2, we have this place from 37 to 45 where the conclusion of Peter's sermon is made on the day of Pentecost. This is a day when the, the Holy Spirit is poured out upon people. And at the conclusion of that sermon, we read these words. Now, when they heard this, and these are people who were there when Christ was put on the cross. They were pierced to the heart and said to Peter and the rest of the apostles, Brothers, what are we to do? Peter said to them, Repent, and each of you be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins, and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. For the promise is for you and your children and for all who are far away, as many as the Lord our God will call to himself. Even on that first day, when knowledge was somewhat weak, when the Holy Spirit's teaching had not yet gone through to the fullness and had not reached the Apostle Paul, who's yet to be saved, and who would understand the calling of the Gentiles and how all nations would be included in this salvation, with, with much of that yet to be uncovered and, 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 and made clear, Peter, in concluding these remarks, says to these people, be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins, and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. 
Now, this is a major plot part in this gospel. It's major from John the Baptist teachings who teached to repent of sin, to Jesus who laid out this two foundations, one that would stand and one would not. And what would make one stand would be the activity of God. And the activity of God here in Peter's words is seeing through a true repentance, through a baptism in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of sins, and what? You will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. Now this is a huge gift. This isn't just a gift. This isn't just the Holy Spirit. We're not talking about tongues. We're not talking about manufactured miracles. We're not talking about anything like that. We're talking about the working of Almighty God that makes the heart real. That when people come to a saving knowledge of Jesus Christ and they're actually transformed and changed, it's not by some act of their own will. It's not by some something that they they're able to produce within themselves. This is a gift by which the Holy Spirit is given to a person that then produces lasting, eternal change. For the promises for you and your children, for as many as are far away, as many as the Lord our God will call to him. Self. Now, those are big words. Let's not uh, ramble over those words too quickly. As many as the Lord, that's a big word. It's coming up. We're going to look at it a little bit. As many as the Lord our God will call to himself. Who does the calling? You know, you come here. Here's the king seated on his throne. You come. You're one of my people. Well, let all the, the, those who are on the Lord's side come to me, Moses said. It's a, there's, there's something special in the calling of God. We don't call ourselves. Men, prophets, teachers, preachers are not men who call themselves. They're called by God. Now, this statement by Peter makes it very clear. As many as the Lord God will call to, his, as to himself. And then in verse 40, and with many other words he solemnly testified and kept on urging them, saying, what was he urging them to do? Well, he was urging them in verse 40 to do this, be saved from this perverse generation. To what? To be saved from this perverse generation. So then those who had received his word and were, his word were baptized. And that day they were added about 3,000 souls. They were continually devoting themselves to the apostles' teaching, to fellowship, to breaking of bread, and to prayer. Now there's the beginning of fruit in their lives. Right from day one, they're devoting themselves to, to the, not their own teaching, not their own ideas, not their own traditions. No, they're devoting themselves to the apostles' teaching. These men set forth by God as a foundation to the church, founded on the the apostles and the prophets. So then those who had received his word were baptized and were added about 3,000 souls, and they were continually devoting themselves. I mean, they were addicted to the apostles' teaching and to fellowship, sharing together as partners in the gospel, to the breaking of bread, remembering the Lord's death and his broken body, 
and in, in breaking bread together. There, there's a oneness here. There's a fellowship and to prayer. And they're praying together. Huge part of the church. What are they praying for? Well, there's hard times coming. And there's, there's glory to be received. And there's joy. And there's a new life in Christ. And all of these things are just engulfed in this life of prayer that takes on, the church takes on a life of prayer. So that in 43 through 45, we read, everyone kept feeling a sense of awe. They were amazed. This whole sense of awe, why? Because there's wonders and signs taking place through the apostles. And all the believers were together and had all things in common. And they would sell their property and possessions and share them with, with all to the extent that anyone who had any need, all the needs were met. This is love being personified through a person who was taking up residence through the Holy Spirit that was living within the church. Now, as we go on and, 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 and follow up on this message, you know, we're looking at the gospel as it's received initially and rejected initially. And then the day of Pentecost comes, and there's two foundations, and there's a building upon the church and there's also a rejecting of the gospel message. This goes on in the beginning, and it has continued for 2,000 years. Jesus said there would be two reactions. He said there would be two foundations. One would be weak, one would be strong. One would stand the test of time, the test of trials, the test of what reality, and there would be one that would fall flat and would be meaningless and empty. So I want us to ask ourselves, what is the church? That's right. What, what is the church? And I, I'm just going to give some thoughts today. I mean, there's so much that could be given. But I want to make an explanation of what the church is because people are misguided. They think traditions are church. They think that there's Baptist traditions and Presbyterian traditions, and those traditions are what makes a church. Okay, I want us to understand that what makes a church is the lordship of Jesus Christ. What makes a church is what takes place in the heart of individuals that may assemble together in a building once a week, but that building is only as true as each individual member actually that the Lord Jesus Christ is their Lord, that it's a reality. Now in Romans chapter 1 and verse 1, and you can take this throughout the New Testament, but in Romans chapter 1, Paul writes his opening words, Paul, a slave, a doulos of Christ Jesus. Paul, a slave of Christ Jesus. Now, this is no little introductory word. You know, it's just let's, we sign, you know, something sincerely, Joe Durso, you know, and it's a signature. It doesn't mean anything. It, it, this means everything. Every single word of God means something vitally important. And Paul, the way he signs his name, as in Romans 1.1, very first letter, after you get through the Gospels and the book of Acts and the history is done, and the first letter is written to the church, and it's how is it signed? It's signed in the beginning, Paul, a slave, a doulos of Christ Jesus, which is a slave to a master in a master-slave relationship. There's ownership. The slave has no rights of his own. He's not a person of his own. He's actually a slave of Christ Jesus. 
And this is setting the stage. Now, in 1 Corinthians chapter 1 and verse 2, Paul says, Saints, he's writing to saints by calling, with all who in every place call in the name of our Lord, Curios, Lord, as in Dulos is slave, Curios is Lord, Lord and Master of slaves, Jesus Christ. He's talking to the church that are made up of saints by calling. We already talked a little bit about calling. Who all in every place call on the name of Curios, the Lord, the Master of slaves. What is a church? A church is those people who acknowledge from their heart by the working of the Holy Spirit that's given at the point that they repent of sins and believe the gospel, those people become slaves, doulos, of curios, the Lord and Master of slaves, Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ is Lord. We're doulos, and he's curios, Lord. Now, this is huge, because remember what the foundation is built on. It either stands firm, being built on a good, solid foundation of what? Of, of repentance and faith that's real, not fake, that produces fruit, because it's real. I mean, a false vine, a vine that you, you stick a grape on, that's just, you know, a, maybe it's a flower vine with that you could st- uh, s- stick something on, or it's real, it's producing fruit. In this case, the, the church that's producing fruit by the Holy Spirit, real fruit, real love, not just words, not empty words, but real love, this is a church. The church is enslaved to the Lord Jesus Christ. That's number one. What is a church? It's a slave, it's a slave church. Willing, willingly, absolutely willingly. But that's a work of the Holy Spirit. Rather than in being enslaved to sin through lust and covetousness and false gods and all the sins that sin that the heart produces. Rather, this is a church that is enslaved to Jesus Christ. That's number one. Number two. The church is one. Ephesians chapter 4, verses 1 through 6 says this, Therefore, I, the prisoner of the Lord, and he was a prisoner in prison for the Lord's sake as he preached the gospel and they hated him for it, urge you to walk in a manner worthy of your calling, back to calling, with which you have been called. We're all called. True Christians have been called by God. And we are to do so, he says, with all humility and gentleness and patience, bearing with one another in love. The church is not made up of people who just go through the motions. They don't get down on their hands and their knees and they pray for seven minutes in the morning because that's what's expected of them. They pray because they love God, they need God, they, they, give, they give them their heart and their soul to God by the working of the Holy Spirit. They've been called for this purpose. And so we're to walk in a manner worthy of the calling with all humility, gentleness, patience, bearing with one another in love, being diligent to keep the unity of the Spirit and the bond of peace. Diligent 
to keep the unity of the Spirit. And you know what it takes to keep the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace? It takes an understanding from verses 4 through 6 that I'm about to read. I want you to hear the words and, and, and then try to realize what understanding needs to come through these verses. Verse 4 says, There is one body. We're to keep the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. And then he says, There is one body and one Spirit. Thus, just as you are also called, back to calling, in one hope. Hope is faith in the future of your calling. There's one hope in your calling. One Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all who is over all and through all and in all. Now do I have to repeat this? I'm sure I do. And and we just want to get an understanding of what the bond of peace is. There's one body. How many bodies? Pentecostals, Presbyterians, Baptists, how many? How many does this say? One. This says one. This is an end of traditions to the man who wants to be obedient to God. There's one body. There's not 1,500 bodies. There's not 300, 150. There's not 10. There's one body. Why? Well, there's one spirit. And where there's one spirit... All the body is one because it's all bound together by that one spirit. And that is the Holy Spirit. There's not 15 million bodies in the church today. There's one. All united in what? One body, one spirit. We've all been called in one hope. That's one faith of our calling. We, have, we just have the one faith, just the one hope. We have one Lord. Back to slave-master situation. And you know what? There's just one Lord. There's not 15 million pastors all saying their own thing and doing their own thing and following their own traditions. That's not what this says. This says there's one Lord. There's one master of the church. And any pastor who's a pastor who's going to hear anything at all just remotely related to well done It's that person who says, I have no rights, I have no authorities, I have no mind of what I think the church needs. All I have is the word of God that tells me what to do. And I have to be in line with every other Christian. And every Christian is commanded, is dictated to by this scripture, and many, many, many more. To live this way. As if there's one Lord and one faith and one baptism and one God and Father of all who's in all and through all and in all. There's no options here. There's no options here. Well, you know, you have an interpretation, I have an interpretation. Forget interpretation. The man who does due diligence to understand the Bible rightly must come to God's interpretation. There's only one. The author's doesn't matter what I think. It doesn't matter what any other preacher thinks. The only thing that matters is what Jesus Christ thinks, the one who we already established to be Lord of the church. 
Anything other than that, anything that teaches us to be divided is from Satan. Let's be clear about that. God unites in Jesus Christ. The Holy Spirit unites in Jesus Christ. He takes the word and he gives it the proper meaning. The reason that there's so many interpretations is because everyone wants to have a mind of their own. There has to be a dying to self. Now, 30 years ago, 40 years ago, the idea of dying to self became hideous. It became unacceptable. But there's no following Jesus Christ apart from dying to self. It's the only way to do it. So, number one, the church is enslaved to one Lord, and that's Jesus Christ. Number two, the church is one. Just one. And we have to have this in our minds because with all these ideas floating around and all these traditions and everybody can do their own thing, there's no obedience to Jesus Christ as Lord. It's not happening. Not the way it's supposed to. These are hard words. It doesn't matter. I'm either being true to what this says or I'm not. There's either one Lord and one baptism and one faith and one spirit and one body or there isn't. Is there more than one? Well, no. There can be no contradiction in the Word of God. God never contradicts Himself. He's always single-minded in everything He says. It's always yes and yes and no and no, and that's it. So this says one. One baptism. That's it. Sorry for being a little hard here, but we're talking about Jesus Christ being Lord. And you see, there's no place to give ourselves other options. There's no place to give ourselves other options. Ephesians chapter 4 goes on in verse 17 to 24. And in this, the church is a new self. This is very important. It's not something old. It's not something being fixed. It's not something which is just being renovated. No, no, no. It's something new. For I say this and affirm in the Lord that you are no longer to walk just as the Gentiles also walked in the futility of their minds, being darkened in their understanding, excluded from the life of God because of the ignorance that is in them, because of the hardness of their heart. Okay, let's get this straight. Uh, Paul is writing this, and in this fourth chapter he's saying, I affirm in the Lord that there are no, you are no longer to no longer walk just as the Gentiles walk. How do they walk? in the futility of their mind. Futile, it's just what they do is futile. It's pointless. Why? Because their understanding is darkened, because they're excluded from the life of God, because of the ignorance that's in them, because of the hardness of their heart. That's not the condition of the church. It's not meant to be the condition of the church ever. Now, when you read through the New Testament, as in Corinthians, and you see there was a lot of that going on, to which God reproves through the Apostle Paul, I mean seriously reproves, and says, this is unacceptable. There has to be an accounting. There has to be, get this, discipline. The church needs to be disciplining itself. The church needs to discipline itself. Can I say that enough? 
that's something that's kind of foreign to the church today because it's too hard and, you know, we're not meant to judge and we have to be forgiving. And we had all of these terms which have nothing to do with love because the father who loves his son disciplines his son. The father who loves his children, he shows them the right way. Sometimes he takes them out behind the barn. Sometimes he just gives them a, a sweet talk to understand, look, this is true, this is false. He, he's teaching them, and it all has to do with the way we live. And if we live accordingly, fine, all is good. If we don't live accordingly, then we discipline one another. Now, because the church is without discipline today, then there's no new self. How can you have a new self without discipline? You know, we, we're not just made perfect. And, and as things come up, and as they be, we become aware of things and other brothers come alongside and they say, hey, brother, you know, I'm kind of seeing this in your life. And we say to them, thank you, brother, for seeing that. You know, I wasn't seeing that. And, and discipline starts to take place. And then you have a new church. And the reason the church is not, it's divided, the church that it's so weak and it's not filled with the Holy Spirit and all of these reasons is because there is no discipline. You just do whatever you want. And you have the right to do whatever you want. So we're told. But according to this, no, no hardness of heart, no ignorance, no, no lack of understanding. That's not who the church is. Verse 19 goes on and they say, they have become callous, have given themselves up to indecent behavior, this is the world, for the practice of every kind of impurity with greediness. But, there's a huge but here in verse 20, you did not learn Christ in this way. Oh, there's a learning Christ. That's right, there's the teaching of the, of the, the apostles, or the Bible, the way it's been written, and it's locked down. It has, an, it has a, an interpretation by God alone. And when you learn these things, then you learn Christ. We don't just talk to ourselves to think, you know, big, put our degrees and hang them on the wall, and now we know these things, and there's no change in our life. That's not Christianity. That's pride, and, and that's... Um, 1 Corinthians chapter 8, verse 1, you know, concerning things sacrificed to idols, we all have knowledge. We all get it. We all get the idolatry. Knowledge puffs up. We're not talking about that kind of knowledge. We're talking about the kind of knowledge that humbles us, that brings us to the cross of Christ. But you did not learn Christ in this way if indeed you have heard him. Okay, that's always in question, particularly when there isn't a word, action behind the words. You did not learn Christ in this way, if indeed, indeed you have heard him and have been taught in him, just as truth is in Jesus. That in reference to your former way of life, you are to rid yourselves of the old self, which is being corrupted in accordance with the lusts of deceit, and you are to be renewed in the spirit of your minds, put on the new self, which is in the likeness of God, which has been created in righteousness and holiness and of the truth. That's a whole different picture. That's the church the way it's meant to be, a church that holds itself accountable to live not according to the old world, according to the darkness and the ignorance in the world that led to a hardness of heart, callous being in themselves indecent in behavior and practicing impurity and greediness. That, no, that's not the church. And the church isn't just laying out standards that it meets its own standards, but it's laying out standards set forth by God. And that's where we come to Matthew chapter 18, 1 Corinthians chapter 5.
go through 1st, 2nd Timothy, Titus, all of these ways in which the church is supposed to make itself accountable to Almighty God. Now, if you want to hear more of this, go to the Shepherds Conference 2001, and the fourth message there is on church discipline. You can listen to an hour and 15 minutes of what church discipline is supposed to look like in the church today. That's right. That's the, uh, the Shepherds Conference 2001. It's the fourth message on uh, discipline within the church. <clears throat> now, in conclusion to this message, there's receiving the message of the gospel by which we, we, by the work of the Holy Spirit, Jesus Christ becomes Lord of our life. Or there's a rejection of the gospel in place of what is known as the Antichrist. The Antichrist has been in the world for 2,000 years. The, the Antichrist has been supplanting the true church for a false church. Most of the churches that you look at, no matter what denomination it's in, there's falsehoods, there's lies, there's deceptions, there's anything but Christ as Lord. You know, we could go on and on in the specifics of how Jesus Christ is meant to be Lord, just like by the church being one. Just as one little example which the church does not obey. So there's either accepting the one true Jesus Christ as Lord, or there's rejecting Jesus Christ as Lord and receiving the spirit of Antichrist. Now this is coming towards concluding days when Christ, the Antichrist is probably going to come on the scene. Uh, he's coming eventually. He's going to come one day. And it may be within our lifetime, very, very likely. This whole idea of COVID and the world is moving rapidly towards an end of all freedoms and liberties and the whole world just becoming under one dictator. So in Revelation chapter 12, verse 17, it says, So the dragon was enraged with the woman and went off to make war with the rest of her children who keep the commandments of God and hold to the testimony of Jesus. So by the time we get to Revelation chapter 12, and things are starting to unwind and unravel, and the Antichrist is starting to reveal, and there are those who keep the commandments of God. There is the true testimony of Jesus Christ in, that last, in those last days. And during those last days, people lose their heads, and they, they have to sacrifice, as the world has been sacrificing, and sacrifices, I don't know, something like 15 million people a year. Uh, and, and while this is taking place, uh, as it has been for 2,000 years, it's just going to get revved up. So in Revelations 13, uh, 7 to 10, it says, it was also given to him to make war with the saints and to overcome them. And authority was given to him to, to every tribe, people, language, and nation. And we're talking about the beast. We're talking about the, the false prophet that rise up, the one who's going to sit in the place of God. All who live on the earth will worship him. See, the, the world is not, not worshiping Jesus Christ. The world is going to completely, almost completely go to worshiping him, for which the majority of the world will be utterly destroyed before Christ's millennial kingdom when he comes and serves for a thousand years. Because that day is also right on the horizon. And everyone whose name has not been written since the foundation of the world in the book of life of the Lamb who has been slaughtered. If anyone has an ear, let him hear. If anyone is destined for captivity, to captivity goes. If anyone kills with the sword, with the sword he must be killed. Here is the perseverance and faith. 
of the saints. This is very clear. It, there's no reason for you to have to turn into all kinds of interpretations and all this. This is just as clear as crystal. All who live on the earth will worship him. That's the Antichrist. Except for those who lay down their lives for Christ in that hour. Everyone whose name has not been written since the foundation of the world in the book of life of the Lamb who has been slaughtered. This is something that was done by God. People hate to hear this. You know, there's so many groups of people that are uh, in, in their theology, in their thinking. They're in control. Uh, I got a news flash for you if you're listening to this. You're not in control. I'm not in control. God is in control. That goes right down to each and every last person who has been written down in the Lamb's Book of Life that he has decided to call to himself. Oh, you're talking Calvin. No, I'm talking Bible. Who calls you? Who called you to salvation? You? Who gave you the invitation to come to Christ and the power to do so? You have the authority to turn from your sinful ways and to receive the gospel? I think you need to really rethink that. Sin is reported in the scriptures as a slavery. A slavery where the slave has no rights, no abilities, no power or authority. He's a slave. Now, we're set free in Christ. And when, when Christ comes and he does a work in your heart and sets you free, well, now you, now you begin to make choices. But until then, you're not making any choices. No, you're chained up, just like me and every other person born into Adam's race. So I'm going to conclude with Revelations 13, 11 through 18. Then I saw another beast coming out up out of the earth, and he had two horns like a lamb, and he, had, and he spoke as a dragon. He exercises all the authority of the first beast in his presence, and he makes the earth and those who live in it, on it, worship the first beast whose fatal wound was healed. He performs great signs so that even makes fire come down out of the sky and the earth in the presence of people. And he deceives those who live on the earth because of the signs which he has given him to perform in the presence of the beast, telling those who live on the earth to make an image to the beast who had the wound of the sword and had come to life. So here's the fake beast being raised from the dead as a, as a, a fake form of what happened when Jesus Christ went to the cross in reality and was, was raised on the third day in newness of life. Verse 15, it was given him to, to give breath to the image of the beast so that the image of the beast would even speak and cause all who do not worship the image of the beast to be killed. This is how graphic and how bloody it gets in the last days. You've got to worship this image or you die. It doesn't sound like the love of Christ to me. But people are going to follow this. They're going to believe it. Verse 16, And he causes all the small and the great, the rich and the poor, the free and the slaves, to be given a mark on their right hand and on their foreheads. And he decrees that no one will be able to buy or sell except the one who has the mark, either the name of the beast or the number of his name. Here is wisdom. 
Let him understand who calculates the number of the beast, for the number is the number of man. And his number is six, six, six. Everybody's familiar. Many people are familiar with the number. They're familiar with the mark of the beast. They're familiar. But here's the key point here. There's one gospel, and that gospel is either rejected or it's received. To all those who reject that gospel, when days get really hard, as these days are coming upon the earth, it's, it's the same thing, really. It's either reject the gospel or receive the gospel. In those last days, there'll be 666, there'll be choices made, just like there's choices today. People die and die all over the world today because they won't say, they have to say that Jesus Christ is Lord. And so they give their life for Jesus Christ is Lord. It's, it's no different. The numbers change. The, the extremity of God coming to earth and pummeling the earth and actually transforming it into something that will last for a thousand years and allow men to flourish for a thousand years. I mean, all of that takes place. It's true. But it's life and it's death. It's salvation or it's being lost forever. It's either you believe that Jesus Christ is, is Lord and, and acknowledge that and repent of sins and believe the gospel or to reject that as true. Even though you go to church and you sit on a pew once a week and you do your thing, your religious thing, when there's no reality to it whatsoever. You see, it's all the same. The numbers change, the quantities change, the time changes, what happens changes. But after all is said and done, the tribulation is only seven years anyway. I mean, seven years is a flick of the eye. And it's done. And then we're on to a thousand years of kingdom and at the end of that thousand-year kingdom, there's the great white throne, and those who have received Christ go into eternal life, and those who have not go into eternal damnation. The choice, well, so far as a choice is presented, it's being presented to you right now. If your heart is speaking to you and you, you want to receive Jesus Christ as Lord, then pray to God he would empower you by the Holy Spirit and make it possible to receive Jesus Christ as Lord. Because without him, you can do nothing. I'm the branch. I'm the root. You're the branch. Without me, you can do nothing, Jesus said. And that nothing is not some small something, Martin Luther said. It's nothing. You can't do, you can do nothing apart from Jesus Christ. And that means enter the door. That means come to saving faith in Jesus Christ. When he says you can do nothing apart from him, believe it. It's true. Everything he says is absolutely true. Dear Heavenly Father, I thank you for this, this idea that the gospel is either received or it's rejected. I pray, dear Heavenly Father, for every person who would hear this message, that they would understand they have a, a huge burden upon them. And that burden is to receive the gospel of Jesus Christ, something they can't accomplish. Place it within the hearts of the hearers, Lord, to know just what we are. As a sinful race in Adam, we're all lost sinners. We're all dead in sins and trespasses. We're incapable, unable, unwilling, Romans 8, 7, to submit to the law of God. I pray, dear Heavenly Father, your blessing upon this message. In Jesus' name, amen.